Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Feel free to use table of contents if you need to. And I should add, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. So regardless of what location you are at, including here in this room, just go into the lobby at your location. And I'm not sure exactly who to point you to. I mean, I know in the Connect Center, well, just, just ask any Christian that you see around. Just ask somebody, are you a Christian? And if they say yes, be like, can you help me get a Bible? And if they say no, then bring them to me. Uh, and, uh, or just tell them that, that's a problem uh, with you. So anyway, just we want to get you a Bible if you don't have one. That's the point. Uh, as returning, I do want to welcome those of you in other locations, as well as those of you online who are not able to be with us in person. It's, it's good to be together around God's word. Most Americans believe in heaven, according to polls, and most Americans believe they will go to heaven when they die. Interestingly, though, most Americans don't believe in hell, and hardly anyone believes they will go there. Hell is an unpopular, almost unmentionable subject in our day. I wonder how many of you had a conversation about hell this week in your school, or your workplace, or your neighborhood. And it's not just unpopular in our country. It's unpopular in the church. Churches don't talk much about hell today. And you may be visiting for the first time. You may have come with a friend or a family member who invited you, and you may be thinking, well, I picked a great Sunday to visit. <laughs> or invite someone when we're talking about hell. Because truth be told, we as Christians often feel almost embarrassed to talk about hell. Ajith Fernando writes how Bible-believing Christians are often apologetic about the biblical doctrine of eternal divine punishment in hell. He writes that Bible-believing Christians say that they wish what the Bible says about the punishment of sinners was not true, that they find it hard to accept this doctrine emotionally, but that because the Bible teaches it, they are forced to believe it. He goes on to describe how the message Christians convey to those outside the church is that the idea that multitudes of people will go to everlasting pain and punishment when they die doesn't really feel right to us, but it's what God says, so I guess we believe it. Or many Christians think, the Bible's kind of unclear about hell. What is clear is that the message of Jesus is about divine love, not divine punishment. But is that true? That's really the question, isn't it? Is hell true and real? Because if it is, so just assume for a moment that hell is true, that it is a real destination for multitudes of people, including any one of us, if that is true, then surely we would want to talk about hell. And we would invite everyone to hear about it 
so that we make sure we and they don't go there. It feels pretty loving to talk about hell if it's true. Which leads us to Jesus' words in our next stop in the book of Mark. Chapter 9, verse 42. Jesus is talking with his disciples, and he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Amen. So three times in this short passage, Jesus mentions hell. Verse 43, verse 45, and verse 47. And you may notice in many of your Bibles that there actually is no verse 44 or verse 46. And you probably have a little note in your Bible about this because there are small discrepancies in the earliest New Testament manuscripts that we have. And some manuscripts have verses 44 and 46. Others don't. But the meaning is still the same because in the manuscripts that do contain verses 44 and 46, those verses simply repeat Verse 48, two more times, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The point is, apparently Jesus talks pretty clearly about hell. And this is not uncommon. Jesus actually talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible, which should say something to us, shouldn't it? In the words of Tim Keller, if Jesus, the Lord of love and author of grace, spoke about hell more often and in a more vivid, blood-curdling manner than anyone else, it must be a crucial truth. This means we need to think and talk about hell. We need to think and talk about hell biblically. Francis Channon a book he wrote on hell summed this up well. He said, if hell is some primitive myth left over from conservative tradition, then let's set it on that dusty shelf next to other traditional beliefs that have no basis in Scripture. But if it is true, if the Bible does teach that there is a literal hell awaiting those who don't believe in Jesus, then this reality must change us. We need to hear what God says in his word about hell which means we also need to think and talk about hell humbly. When most of us think about hell pridefully, I've already mentioned how we're prone to be ashamed or embarrassed of even the idea of hell or ashamed of a God who punishes decent people. 
In that same book on hell, Francis Chan confessed what I think we all often feel. He wrote, like the nervous kid who tries to keep his friends from seeing his drunken father, I have tried to hide God at times. Then he writes, but who do I think I am? The truth is God is perfect and right in all that he does. I'm a fool for thinking otherwise. And he does not need nor want me to cover for him. There's nothing to be covered. Everything about God and all he does is perfect. But we struggle with this. Don't we? With believing that hell is right, with believing that this or that person we knew is in hell, that we know might go to hell. And we say, or at least think things like, well, I could never worship a God who, who what? Who would disagree with you? Who would do things different than you? Because as soon as you say that, or think that, it sounds a lot like you think you should be God. Like you know better than God. Can I remind you, this is how sin entered the world in the first place? With mankind saying to God, we know better than you. Do you really think you are righteous enough to question the justice of God? That you are knowledgeable enough to critique the wisdom of God and pure enough to scorn the goodness of God? One more quote from Francis. He writes, Would you have thought to rescue sinful people from their sins by sending your son to take on human flesh? Would you have thought to enter creation through the womb of a young Jewish woman and be born in a feeding trough? Would you have thought to allow your created beings to torture your son, lacerate his flesh with whips, and then drive nails through his hands and feet? It's incredibly arrogant to pick and choose which incomprehensible truths we embrace. No one wants to ditch God's plan of redemption, even though it doesn't make sense to us. Neither should we erase God's revealed plan of punishment because it doesn't sit well with us. We need to think and talk about hell humbly. And I should add to this picture of humility, we need to think and talk about hell as people who realize this is what we all deserve. To be sure, we were all created with nobility in the image of God for relationship with God. Yet we have all rebelled against God. It looks different in each one of our lives, but we have all sinned against an infinitely holy God, which means we all deserve infinite justice, which means we need to think and talk about hell personally, knowing that every single one of us, without exception, when we die, will either go to heaven or hell. And it could be today for any one of us or anyone around us. 
So we don't think and talk about hell like it's an interesting topic. We think and talk about hell like it's a potential destination for people we know, people we love, and people we live with and around, and people we go to school or work with, and people around the world, and for us. This is not just a topic we can shrug our shoulders over and move on to Sunday lunch. This is a truth with massive ramifications for all of eternity. And for today, what's interesting is the Bible never talks about hell simply to teach us generally. The Bible talks about hell to warn us personally, to repent of and run from sin, to live in righteousness, and to lead others to eternal life with urgency in our hearts. Isn't this clear in Jesus' words to us today? Jesus didn't gather his disciples together and say, I want to teach you a few things about hell. Instead, he gathered his disciples together and said, well, let's just dive in if you're taking notes. Jesus is saying, be serious about keeping others from sin. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who, believes in me, who believe in me to sin, and there's some discussion about who Jesus is referring to as the little ones here. Is this a reference to children back up in verse 36 or to followers of Jesus who are casting out demons apart from Jesus' disciples in verse 38? Or is this just a reference to all believers, like all children of God? It seems to me like it's likely a reference to all believers. But the reality is, when you think about it, it sure seems like it could apply to anyone and everyone. God would certainly say to us, do not cause anyone around you to sin. All the more so your brothers and sisters in Christ. All the more so weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. Then listen to the language here. It would be better for you if a great millstone, a huge, extremely heavy stone, was hung around your neck and thrown into the sea. That is graphic imagery, to say the least. Hear this word from God to every one of us in this gathering right now. Take your influence on other people seriously. Do not lead any one person, just one person, do not lead any one person to sin. If you are married, do not lead your spouse to sin. Be serious about keeping them from sin. If you are a parent, be serious about keeping your children from sin. If you have a brother or sister, be serious about keeping them from sin. If you're a, a leader in any other Christian's life in any way. Be serious about keeping them from sin. For every follower of Jesus, think about your family, your friends, your church group, anybody else who's in Christ. Be serious about helping them flee sin. Do not be found in any way causing them, either intentionally or unintentionally, to sin. This is consistent with the traits we talk about of a church Biblical fellowship, caring for one another, watching out for each other. 
Biblical accountability and discipline, even lovingly confronting one another in sin. Take these traits seriously. If you cause another to sin, it would be better for you to die by drowning with a stone hung around your neck, Jesus says. And then the language gets even more graphic in regard to keeping yourself from sin. So the second thing Jesus says here. Be serious about keeping yourself from sin. If your hand causes you to sin, here's what you do. Cut it off. Why? Because it'd be better for you to end your life crippled with one hand than with two hands to go to hell. Now we know, based on the rest of the Bible, specifically even commands against bodily mutilation. This is not literal language from Jesus. And we also know that even if you only have one hand, you'll still be tempted to sin. Nowhere in Scripture does God say, if you'll just lose a body part, you will be sinless. This is symbolic language intended by Jesus to be shocking in its effect. Whatever is precious to you, your hand or your foot or your eye, no matter how important they are for you to have, which arguably are all pretty important, they were nowhere near as important as you having life, having the kingdom of God. Your spiritual life is worth the sacrifice of your physical life. So take drastic measures, Jesus says, to stay away from sin because sin is deadly. It keeps you from life. Write it down, mark it down. Sin is deadly. Sin is always, 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 always deadly. Sin always, no matter how small you might think it is, sin keeps you from life. Look at the world around us. All the evil and injustice and suffering and death, this is where sin leads in the world. This is where sin leads in our lives. And ultimately, not just in the world, where does sin lead? Leads to, well, go back to verse 43, to hell, to the unquenchable fire, to hell, to hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not Quenched. Jesus is warning us here with the reality of hell. So what is it? So what is a biblical definition of hell? Hell is the place of dreadful, conscious, never-ending judgment for sinners. The word Jesus uses for hell here in Mark 9 is Gehenna. It's a reference to a deep valley on the south side of Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnom. And in the Old Testament, we read about this valley being a place where idolatrous offerings and sacrifices were made to false gods, including human sacrifices. Jeremiah 7 describes it as a valley of slaughter with burning bodies. And here in Mark 9, when we see where their worm does not die, 
fire is not quenched. That's a quote from the very last verse in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So Gehenna referred to a place where the fire never goes out. Continues on day after day after day. And worms, the feast on carcasses, never lack anything to devour. That's the language Jesus uses to describe where sin leads. This is not the only language he uses. Just a quick survey. Our Bible reading just this year, just over the last month, we've already seen Matthew chapter 13, verse 41 and 42, where Jesus says the Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a fiery furnace where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Luke 16, Jesus describes the anguish of flames in hell. He calls it a place of torment. And this is on top of other descriptions of hell in the Bible. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 describes the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Revelation 20, verse 15, describes a lake of fire where, Revelation chapter 14, people are tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. I am always overwhelmed when I read this verse. Like, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Like, and ever adds nothing to the meaning. It's not necessary, right? Like, forever, like, covered it. So why do we have and ever? It's like God in his word is saying, do you see the words and ever? Like, it never, ever, ever ends. It keeps going on forever and ever. Jonathan Edwards envisioned this scene in many ways. I'll share just one lengthy quote from one of, his, one of his most famous sermons, a sermon that would be pretty out of style today. He said, to help your conception, imagine yourself to be cast into a fiery oven, all of a glowing heat, or into the midst of a blowing brick kiln, or of a great furnace, where your pain would be as much greater than that occasioned by accidentally touching a coal of fire as the heat is greater. Imagine also that your body were to lie there for a quarter of an hour full of fire, as full within and without as a bright coal of fire, all the while full of quick sense. What horror would you feel at the entrance of such a furnace? And how long would that quarter of an hour seem to you 
If it were to be measured by a glass, how long would the glass seem to be running? And after you had endured it for one minute, how overbearing would it be for you to think that you had yet to endure the other 14? But what would be the effect on your soul if you knew you must lie there enduring that torment to the full for 24 hours? And how much greater would be the effect if you knew you must endure it for a whole year? And how vastly greater still if you knew you must endure it for a thousand years? Oh, then how would your heart sink if you thought, if you knew that you must bear it forever and ever, that there would be no end, that after millions of millions of ages, your torment would be no nearer to an end than ever it was, and that you should never, never be delivered. But your torment in hell will be immeasurably greater than this illustration represents. Again, if this is true, then we need to talk about this. Amen. And we should want people to hear about this. Yes. Right? Yes. All of this, though, obviously, immediately leads to the question in many people's minds. Is all this language about fire and sulfur literal? Or is it figurative? Is it symbolic? Is hell a literal lake of fire? Or is that just symbolic language? Do people actually burn in hell? And I don't know. This language could be literal. Many pictures of judgment in the Bible, from fire and sulfur raining down on Sodom and Gomorrah to plague after plague in Egypt. These were quite literal. But this language could also be symbolic. People I've quoted, like Jonathan Edwards and Tim Keller, believe it is. But even if that's true, it's not very comforting, is it? If fire and burning and torment are symbols, then what are they symbols for? A nice vacation? Happy hunting grounds? The whole purpose of a symbol to try and express in words a reality that cannot be expressed in words. It should bring no comfort to think that maybe the Bible's language here is symbolic, for that would mean it's worse than how it sounds. Are we hearing this? People say things like, that was a hell of a game. We had a hell of a time. And kids, don't ever say that. And when you hear an adult say it, respectfully tell them they don't have a clue what they're talking about, what they're trifling with in their language. Hell is the place of dreadful, conscious, never-ending judgment for sinners. And as unpopular and politically incorrect as it is to say this, multitudes of people will go there including any number of people in this gathering today. Which leads us to the good news of the Bible, the greatest news in the world that we want to shout everywhere. It's why we want to invite people to church, and I'm glad every single one of you is here today because God himself does not want you or anyone to go to hell. 
This is why John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible. God so loves the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. This This is why the question I try to ask people all the time when I meet them, just go for it. Do you know for sure that you will go to heaven, have eternal life when you die. And most people in response say, I think so. At which point I ask, well, what makes you think so? And the answer is usually some form of, I think I've lived a good life. My good outweighs my bad. And there are two major red flags with that response. Red flag number one In light of the horror of hell, do you really want to go into eternity holding on to a, I think so? I don't. I want to know where I'm going. If that's possible, I want to know. And it is, which is why I then say, you you can know where you're going. God says it, 1 John 5, 13. I write these things so you may know you have eternal life. You can know it. But that then leads to red flag number two. When you think about your good outweighing your bad, because no matter how good you are and how much good you do, you still have sin in your heart against a holy God, an infinitely holy God, which means you still deserve just and righteous, infinite justice. As a just judge, the just judge overall, God does not, cannot, overlook sin. The first step to being saved from hell is realizing you deserve hell. And realizing that on your own, no matter how much good you do, you cannot save yourself from sin and hell. But this is the beauty of God's love for the world, God's love for you. He loves you so much that he has given his only son, that's Jesus. And Jesus has done what you could never do. Jesus has lived the life you could not live, a life of no sin. And then, even though he had no sin for which to die, Jesus died the death you deserve to die. He went to a cross to pay the price for your sin. He died for your sin. And then, the good news keeps getting better because he didn't stay dead for long. Three days later, he rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death. Jesus has lived the life you could not live. He's died the death you deserve to die. And he conquered the enemy you could not conquer. Sin and death. So that whoever you are, no matter what you've done, how much good or bad, doesn't matter. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe, same word, in the name of the Son of God, that you may what? Uh, This is the audience participation part of our program. That you may what? Know that you have eternal life. You can know it. How? By believing. Now, obviously, that's, that's more than just intellectual. Okay, I know about Jesus. I believe Jesus died on the cross. Demons believe that. And they're, they're going to be in hell forever. 
Question is, do you believe, do you trust in Jesus as the Savior and Lord of your life? And to every person within the sound of my voice right now, I urge you, believe in him. Believe in him. Trust in him today. I'll put it this way on the screen. Choose life, eternal life today by trusting in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. God loves you. God's brought you to this moment to hear this good news. He's speaking to your heart right now. Don't toy with sin. Toy with eternity. Trust in Jesus as the Savior and Lord of your life. Amen. Don't wait another day. Don't go another moment without choosing life by trusting in him. And then, then when you do, then lay down your life every day in light of what matters in eternity. Now it makes sense. Like, yes, so be serious about keeping yourself and others from sin. Why? Because sin in your life and sin in others' lives is deadly because sin leads to dreadful, conscious, never-ending suffering. And you've been saved from it. So stop flirting with it and giving in to it. Take drastic measures to keep yourself from sin. And by all means, don't lead anyone else to sin. Lay down your life every day. And I use this language intentionally. Because of the language Jesus uses, starting in verse 49 of Mark 9, I've never understood this language about salt and fire, for everyone to be salted with fire. I've always thought, well, that, what, what just happened? Salt, fire, salt is good? We're just talking about hell. What does this mean to be salted with fire? And studying this this week, it was so fascinating, so helpful. Because you look back in the Old Testament, and you, just, you see how God described his people's offerings and worship. Look at this with me. Leviticus 2, verse 13. You shall season all your grain offerings with what? With salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. And the priest shall burn it as an offering to the Lord. Salted with fire. The whole picture here is a grain offering, an offering of dedication of your resources to God. Season it with salt and burn it. And in this picture of an offering that is pleasing to God, Jesus is taking that now in Mark 9. Everyone will be salted with fire. The whole picture is Jesus saying, lay down your life. For the one who saves you from sin as an offering of your life, free from sin, pure and holy. This is Romans 12.1. I urge you, offer your body as a living sacrifice in view of God's mercy, holy and acceptable to God. Lay down your life every day in light of what matters in eternity. Then he goes on. He starts talking about salt is good. Have salt in yourselves. And here he starts talking about salt like he did back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth. And there's all kinds of, we, we don't have time to dive into all the pictures of salt in the Bible, but the overall picture is 
the helpfulness of salt, the way it flavors, the way it preserves, even fertilizes at different points, the effect of salt that is good, that's what Jesus is calling us to have. So follow this. Flee sin, Jesus is saying, in your life so that you will be like salt in others' lives. So you'll be distinct. I was talking with a couple of people right after the first gathering today. And this, they, they work together. They've worked together for years. And this guy says about this guy. So guy A says guy B. I'm not going to use names. So guy A says, guy B was miserable to be around at work. Everybody hated guy B. And it seemed like he hated everybody at work. Then guy B got serious about his relationship with Jesus. And Guy B's whole life changed. Now everybody at work loves Guy B. Loves being around Guy B. He's a different person. That's that's salt. That's Jesus transforming somebody's life in a way that affects the world around them. And this is what Jesus is saying. Be that kind of people in your home, in your school. I think about all kinds of students listening right now in all kinds of school situations. Be salt in your schools, students. Show what the life and the love of Jesus look like in a way that's distinct. You're not living for the same things that other students around you are living for. You're not living to indulge in a world that's against God. You're living, you've been saved from sin. You're living righteousness and holiness and purity and love and And then, so adults and your workplaces, let that transform the way you work. And people see your life and your love and your integrity and your excellence and your kindness and your character and see that it reflects Jesus in your government job, politics, real estate, education, medicine, whatever domain of work you're in. Flee sin in your life. Flee the ways of this world so that you'll be like salt. And I just pray and all week long, God, raise up salty people in the political sphere of Metro Washington, D.C. that show following Jesus, you look different, you act different, you love different. In every single domain, I was, I was meeting this last week with a group of brothers and sisters in Christ who are in missile defense and space technology. Just brilliant people. And they, are, they come together to encourage each other in their workplace to say, how can we be salt and light here? How can we spread the love of Jesus through our work in missile defense and space technology? And I was like, yes. And may God multiply your number in every domain. It's just a picture of what I pray for this church the capital of our country. Let's scatter as salt in others' lives. Let's live distinct lives. We're not living for this world. We've been safe from living for this world. We're living for another world. And that changes the way we live and work here. Flee sin in your life so you'll be like salt in others' lives. And then, then listen to the last words of Jesus. Again, it's like, is this out of left field? And be at peace with one another. Okay, why, why say that now? 
And you put it together, it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, flee sin in your life so you'll be like salt in others' lives. And pursue peace in the church in light of what's at stake in the world. There are people all around you on a road that leads to hell. And followers of Jesus, you're, you're going to heaven. You know this. So don't fight with each other. Fight for the sake of people around you who are headed to eternal suffering. And meet and reconcile with each other quickly. Don't let another day go by. Life is too short. Hell is too real. Eternity is too urgent to not be at peace in the church. When people around you are going to dreadful, conscious, never-ending torment, when three billion people around the world haven't even heard how to go to heaven because nobody's told them for God's sake, for their sake, and for your sake, pursue peace in the church in light of what's at stake in the world. So I want to close by leading us in prayer. But before I do, I, I simply want to ask you a few personal, just practical questions that I would encourage you to consider, answer, in light of this word from God. So maybe just get alone with God and answer these. Or maybe in your home, around a meal, before you go to bed tonight, would somebody talk about this or your church group? So here, here's the questions. First and foremost, number one, do you know for sure that you have eternal life and will go to heaven when you die? And if not, I'm going to invite you in just a moment to make this the day, this the moment when you trust in Jesus as the Savior and Lord of your life. Walk away from here today knowing you have eternal life. And second question, what, what sin do you need to repent of today? What drastic measures is God leading you to take to keep yourself from sin? So God is clearly saying to us today, sin is serious, sin is deadly. And he has lovingly brought you to this moment. As you think about sin in your life, he is lovingly saying, repent, turn from it. That's deadly, it's dangerous. And he's lovingly calling you to repentance. What drastic measures do you need to take in order to Keep yourself from sin. And third, in what ways are you leading others to sin? How is God leading you to change that? So stop and just ask the question, is there any way, either intentionally or unintentionally, that you're leading others to sin? Just ask that, either actively or maybe with your passivity. And how is God leading you to change that? Fourth, what are a couple, a few practical ways you can be like salt in others' lives this week, showing the life and love of Jesus to people around you? Like what, how is God calling you to be distinct in your school, in your workplace, where you live, where you work, people you're around in your home? What are some practical ways you can be like salt in others' lives this week? Then a couple more. How is God leading you to pursue peace with any brothers or sisters in Christ? Are there any relationships you have with other Christians where there is conflict or tension or division? To the extent that you are able, go to them and pursue peace with them for their good, for your good, 
and for the good of a world filled with people going to hell who need to be reached for the gospel. Which leads to the last question. Who is God leading you to share the gospel with this week? It would make no sense for us to talk about eternal hell in God's word today. And then walk into a city this week filled with people who are on a road that leads there and not tell anybody, not warn anybody, and share with somebody how much God loves them. He gave his one and only son to die for them so they won't perish, they have eternal life. So just, would you just right now, can you just picture the people that you will see this week? Picture somebody that you'll see this week who doesn't know Jesus. And just pray for that person and pray for boldness and compassion to share the gospel with them this week, to go up to them and say, do you know that for sure that you have eternal life, we'll go to heaven when you die? Or however you want to lead into that. But just share this good news. God's given it to you. We live in a city surrounded by people. What if we all did this? God would use our lives to lead people to eternal life this week. This is who we are, what we do as a church. We don't just come and sit and listen to the word and kind of move on with our lives. Like, this is what we do. Let's give our lives to this and, and see what, what God does to bring people to eternal life through us. So will you bow your heads with me all across this room and other locations? I invite you just to bow your head, close your eyes. and I ask you that question. Do you know for sure that you have eternal life? But if something were to happen to you right now, like five minutes from now, you no longer had breath, do you know you would be in heaven? And if the answer to that question is not a resounding yes in your heart, I invite you right now to pray. Say to God in your heart, God, I know I have sinned against you. And I deserve just eternal judgment. But I believe that you love me. That you've made a way for me to be forgiven of my sin. So today I believe that Jesus lived the life I couldn't live and died the death I deserved to die on a cross and he rose from the grave and conquered sin and death. So I believe in Jesus today. And hear God saying to you, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, who believe in Jesus my Son, that you may know you have eternal life. Just to say, I, I believe, I trust in Jesus as the Savior and Lord of my life today. And for all who pray that, have prayed that, who have believed, are believing, trusting right now, can we just pray, God, help us this week to live in light of what matters in eternity? We lay down our lives today, not just sing songs. We want to lay our lives as an offering before you. And pray, help us to flee sin. And help us all to flee sin by your grace this week. Your power saves us from not just the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. Help us to flee sin, to live in righteousness, holiness. Make us salt and light. We pray in this city, and God, help us to 
share the gospel boldly with somebody this week. We pray that you would use us to lead people to eternal life this week. And you would help us to live for what's going to matter 10 trillion years from now this week. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your warning to us in it. And we praise you for your love for us. We are overwhelmed by the grace and mercy that you have poured out on us. And we praise you for it. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen.